Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of Catholic Light. This week we'll read through Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 156 through 184, and I would like to say congratulations. If you listen to the end of this episode, you will have completed part one, section one of the Catechism. So recall from our first episode, there are four parts to the Catechism, and each part has two sections. Each part and section vary in length, so it's not an even division into eight sections, but again, if you listen to the end of this episode, you will have read, or quote-unquote read, listened to, one out of eight sections of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So you're well on your way, and you're doing a great job. We're going to try something a little bit different this week and see how it works. Rather than reading the Catechism selection first and then giving commentary second, I'm going to flip the two and at first give you commentary on paragraphs 156 through 184, and then secondly, read those paragraphs after the break. You might be familiar with the teaching on the two types of mindset. So if you're not familiar with this teaching, it comes from Carol Dweck's 2007 book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. And it talks about two types of mindset. Uh, She says that some of us have a fixed mindset and some of us have a growth mindset. So if when we're young, um, we're encouraged to focus on the process, to persevere, to give it our all, rather than being praised for our qualities or our attributes, being smart, being pretty, being athletic, then we're more likely to have a growth mindset where we'll tackle new challenges, we'll try different things, because it's not about our given traits or talents or characteristics. It's about trying new things, giving it our all, persevering. So uh, I often struggle with having a fixed mindset. Uh, If I say I'm going to do something, I think I should see it through to the end. So this has its good points. I'm disciplined, I'm persevering, etc. But it also has uh, a bad side. Sometimes I'm a little rigid. Sometimes I undertake projects that don't bear much fruit. And simply in the name of getting it done, I persevere. So I've been listening to your feedback, and I'm trying to take a growth mindset approach here. Um, some, Some of you have told me that you just listened to the commentary, Some of you have told me that you listened to the commentary and the reading of the catechism. Um, So, for example, one friend said it's nice to be able to listen while she's out on a walk and not have to, you know, break out the physical catechism of the Catholic Church. There might be some of you who just listen to the reading of the catechism and don't listen to the commentary, although I have not received that feedback yet. So, welcome to listen to the commentary, the reading of the catechism, both, one or the other, And uh, again, thanks for joining me each week for whatever part or parts to which you are listening. So this week, we're going to discuss, as promised at the end of last week's episode, we're going to discuss the concept of heresy. We'll discuss the church's role in handing on divine revelation without error. And recall from, again, last week's trailer, today, St. Nicholas gets a special shout out. So we begin today by talking about Frank, a wonderful parishioner at our our home parish, 
who is just really fun, loves his faith, and loves my kids, and my kids love him. Um, he, in interacting with them, has just made this really happy association for them with church and with going to Mass. He's silly, he's imaginative, and my kids just can't wait to chat and play with him after Mass. So we'll be making our way, still in the middle of Mass, down the communion line, and they'll be giving him these little waves once they spot him. They'll be doing these whisper shouts, Hi, Frank! Hi! It's Frank! It's Frank! Hey! After Mass, then, you know, they'll quickly run over to him, and he's a, a very prayerful and virtuous man, so as he kneels down to pray and then has these little kids climbing on his back, I'll look over and see he's giving them a double piggyback, my daughter on his shoulders, my son on his back, and, you know, he's marching them out of church. He'll then do these funny things where they, you know, they swim through the parking lot, um, playing these imaginative games on their way to the car. And then by the time I bring out my youngest son, they're doing these, you know, silly poses on top of the minivan, poised and ready to move on to the next thing. So if you're listening, thank you, Frank, for, for making church and mass uh, just such a, a happy place for my kids. Um, this past Christmas, Frank very generously got Christmas gifts for my kids. So after Mass one day, we went out into the vestibule. He gave the kids the gifts, and they very excitedly opened them. Um, my daughter received this fun set of um, items with which you can make different kind of crafty flowers. And then my son opened his gift, and it appeared to be a, a slightly slightly used box of Christmas lights. And much to my son's credit, who usually speaks his mind right away, he goes, wow, thank you. Frank then encouraged him to open the box, which was just a receptacle for a very fun toy. So as my son opened, continued opening the gift, it turned out that uh, Frank had gotten him this stem toy or this toy um, that fit together with different pieces, these cool, colorful stick figures with interlocking hands and feet. And with these little figures, you could build a whole host of things, towers and other structures. You could extend them all in this long line where they were holding hands or holding feet and just do a, a bunch of cool things with them. So as my son has continued to play with this toy, he's figured out more and more uses for it or more and more things that he can, he can build with the little figures. Um, seeing what they can do and how they work, and he's had a lot of fun with it. So far, I've used uh, two images or analogies to talk about divine revelation. So we talked about the tripod of truth, this three-legged structure. Uh, the three legs are sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and divine revelation. And just like any other tripod, you remove any one of those legs and the whatever's on top falls over. In this case, truth does not get accurately handed on. The other image I've used so far is the font of divine revelation. So I described that image of two streams coming out, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and then the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, being the base that, that captures and holds um, the divine revelation that comes to us through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Oftentimes when I recall the font of divine revelation image. I think of a former student who, at the beginning of class, I would have call up students to just give a brief recap of what we had talked about the day before, just to kind of reset us for the day, remind us what we had talked about, and then we'd move on to the next thing. So I had a student who came up to describe 
the font of divine revelation. And she couldn't think of the term font of divine revelation. So she's describing it. She said there's two streams coming out. Then there's this base that like holds the water. It's the, the, the bird bath of faith. <laughs> and that just stuck with us. It was a great, um, great term for it, the font of divine revelation or the bird bath of faith which uh, describes the relationship between sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. So I'd like to present another image today, and that's simply an image of a present, okay, a Christmas present, like what, what Frank gave to my children. This divine revelation, God revealing himself, or as we've seen the catechism refer to it as the deposit of faith, is given to us like a Christmas gift. Okay, through the years, the church has received, unwrapped, and then taken out piece by piece all that's contained in this present, as cheesy as it sounds, this present from God. The church, as it pulls out these pieces contained within the gift, learns how the pieces work, how they fit together, what they mean for us. And then each of us, with the help of the teaching of the church, receives God's divine revelation, receives this deposit of faith. We unwrap it. We turn it over in our hands, piece after piece. We learn what each means uh, for the world and for our individual lives. Uh, my son right now is struggling a little bit with, with lying. So he, uh, the other day he was at the tail end of finishing dinner, didn't want to finish it, and I said, um, you know, if you want dessert... You got to finish your dinner. So about a minute later, he comes with a triumphantly with a clean plate and says, I finished. But there's this little look in his eye that indicated maybe he hadn't actually finished it. I said, did you really finish your dinner or did you throw it out? He goes, I finished it. I said, are you sure? If I look in the trash, I won't see your dinner. Well, then he immediately ran to the bathroom trash can in which he had thrown away the rest of his dinner and then covered over it with a hand towel. I said, that's what we call lying. That's not telling the truth. And not only does it get you in trouble and make mommy and daddy unhappy, but ultimately it's going to make you unhappy um, because we weren't made to lie. So that, that's not going to lead us to the happiness for which we were created. So I'm explaining this to a four-year-old who's like, okay, great. I just want a popsicle for dessert. So I'm relaying this story to uh, my best friend, Teresa, who's also my son's godmother. And she says, um, isn't it interesting how throughout life we have to keep learning the same lessons over and over again, but in more profound and, and you know, kind of slightly different ways so at first, it's if you lie about eating dinner, you don't get dessert. Um, you know, as, as my son gets a little bit older, he might feel inclined to lie about test grades so that he can go out on the weekend and not be grounded. Um, eventually, you know, he might encounter an ethical situation at work where lying seems like the easier thing to do, but, but in the end doesn't lead to happiness. So as we learn these, these lessons over and over again, it's, it's the same truth that's revealed to us. So the truth that lying is wrong, lying does not lead to ultimate happiness, that doesn't change over time. But our understanding of it deepens with the circumstances of life. And as we go through these different circumstances of life, 
uh, we kind of put the the language to that lesson more and more profoundly and and more and more clearly. It's important to note two things. Okay, first, divine revelation or the deposit of faith again doesn't change. It's been there from the beginning and nothing new will be added to it. We've read in a previous episode in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 73, God has revealed himself fully by sending his own son in whom he has established a covenant forever. The son is the father's definitive word, so there will be no further revelation after him. God has revealed himself gradually over time, starting with Adam and Eve. Then he made a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, with the prophets and the leaders of Israel, the chosen people. And then ultimately, God's revelation culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, steps into our human timeline and literally shows us the face of God. When Jesus Christ comes, that covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Israel, the chosen people, that covenant gets cracked wide open to include all of us, which is awesome. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But God doesn't change. Recall from Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph one, God is infinitely perfect. So he doesn't change and he doesn't change his mind like a fickle friend. Well, I don't know if I still want you to be my chosen people. No, the, the Jews are still the chosen people. Okay, God made a covenant with them and he does not go back on his promise or his covenant. We thank God for the Jewish people, our big brothers and sisters in the faith. We thank God then that that covenant got opened up to everyone, to the world. So that divine revelation remains the same. All that God revealed and all of the promises he's made still stand. They're the same and they won't change. The second thing worth noting, however, is that while it's always been there and nothing new will be added to it, like the Christmas present, we're still unpacking that divine revelation. We're unwrapping it. We're taking out all the pieces and seeing how they work and how they fit together. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 66, says, The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away, and no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. So the magisterium, the official teaching authority of the church, the pope and the bishops in communion with him, has been entrusted with the sacred deposit of faith, with the divine revelation that comes to us again through scripture and through tradition, the written word and the spoken word. With that great big Christmas gift, and it's been unpacking, unwrapping, taking out the pieces, observing how they work, seeing how they all fit together for centuries. Now, part of this process is encountering and responding to heresies. Let's turn to the glossary in the back of the catechism and distinguish among three terms that often get um, misunderstood or kind of conflated with each other. So those three terms are heresy, apostasy, and schism. When you flip to the glossary in the back, recall that it's right after the topical index and the abbreviations. And like so many other books, it lists terms that are commonly used throughout the catechism. So heresy is defined as an obstinate, 
excuse me, an obstinate denial after baptism of a truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. So a heretic is someone who obstinately de denies after baptism a truth which must be believed, etc. Apostasy then is the total repudiation of the Christian faith. So an apostate is one who totally repudi repudiates or gives up on the Christian faith. And then lastly, schism is a refusal of submission to the supreme pontiff, that's the pope, or of communion with the members of the church subject to him. So a schismatic is one who refuses to submit to the pope or refuses to be a part of the communion with the members of the church who are subject to the pope. So a couple... Um, examples, and I'll be somewhat specific, but keep it a little general, um, should be helpful in illustrating these three terms. So for heresy, this obstinate denial after baptism of a truth or truths which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. Um, we can look to, there's a number of Catholic politicians in America right now who are Catholic and are very public about their Catholicism. So they profess to be Catholic, to be practicing Catholics, to go to church, to have been raised in the Catholic faith, and yet they very publicly deny or denounce a teaching or some of the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, so most notably right now, the, the issue of abortion um, is an, a subject that a number of Catholic politicians will say, I'm Catholic, I go to church, but... Um, not only do I think that this is lawful for abortion to be legal, but I think it's a good and a right um, for the American people. So the church has always been very clear from start to finish, or from the beginning of the church to the present day, that abortion, the killing of an innocent life in the womb, is always a grave moral evil and um, you know, cannot, be, cannot be accepted or, or supported. And so for someone to say that he or she is Catholic, yet supports abortion, that's an example of, of heresy or heretical um, stance. A second example for the second term, apostasy, I'm thinking of a couple musical artists who were raised in, one was raised in a Catholic faith, one was raised in a Christian denomination, and they began their careers actually as Christian artists, and then at some point just through, put aside their Catholicism, their Christianity entirely. So rather than someone who commits heresy, denounces one part of the faith, someone who commits apostasy just throws out the whole faith altogether. Lastly, an example of schism, I'm thinking of a movie star who was raised Catholic, still practices Catholicism, but he does not recognize Pope Francis as the legitimate Pope of the Catholic Church. So he believes that starting with the Second Vatican Council, we have had no legitimate popes, and so the papacy is vacant right now. So he, he practices the Catholic faith, but does not recognize the pope as the head of the church, nor is he in communion with those who recognize the pope as the head of the church. So you might hear this and say, or you might have had people say to you, like, why does the church have to be so lame? Okay, why can't we all just get along? And what are these big differences? Um, it, it, it's not lame. Uh, the church, sadly, is lame in you know, certain areas of life. But when it comes to her teachings, uh, she's simply clear about what she teaches. So when it comes to heresy, uh, the church is saying, pointing to a certain 
heretical teaching and saying, no, that's not what it means to be Catholic. Okay, if you believe that, there's a church for that. But we don't say that the Catholics are basically Jewish or Hindu or atheist because each believes uh, very specific and distinct things. So this is why non-Catholics don't receive the Eucharist and why, to reference our earlier example, Catholic politicians who promote anti-Catholic teachings are asked not to receive the Eucharist. In receiving the Eucharist, which is also known as or commonly referred to as communion, one is saying with one's actions that one is in communion with Jesus and the church and all that Jesus teaches in and through the church. Again, you might think like, lame, just let the people come. But were the church to do that, she would be putting people who don't believe in the teachings of the church in an uncomfortable position. Okay, so to say like, everyone's welcome, receive this communion, which in receiving it says you're in communion or believe all that the church teaches uh, is, is putting people in an awkward or uncomfortable position because that's, that's not the case. To be clear, the church welcomes everyone to participate in the rest of the liturgy, uh, just not the part that would invite a person's actions to contradict his or her beliefs. Now, this sets us all up for the last portion of today's reading of the Catechism, which is the recitation first of the Apostles' Creed and second, the Nicene Creed. So the Apostles' Creed, as the name indicates, is a faithful summary of the 12 apostles' faith. Paragraph 186 says, From the beginning, the apostolic church expressed and handed on her faith in brief formulae for all. This synthesis of faith was not made to accord with human opinions, but rather what was of the greatest importance was gathered from all the scriptures to present the one teaching of the faith in its entirety. And just as the mustard seed contains a great number of branches in a tiny grain, so too the summary of faith encompassed in a few words the whole knowledge of the true religion contained in the Old and New Testaments. If you look at the footnotes of paragraph 186, you'll see two scripture references. The first is Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and the second is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, which are early creeds. So right in scripture there, we have the formulations or the beginning of the formulations of our first creed. The word creed comes from Latin, the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And so we see the beginning of these creeds already in the Bible. The Apostles' Creed was formulated early on from sacred scripture, the Bible, sacred tradition, the oral preaching of the apostles handed on from bishop to bishop to bishop. And this organic summary, which articulated the essential elements of the faith, was intended especially for candidates for baptism. So as people were about to be baptized in the early church, they would profess the Apostles' Creed, which was, as we just noted, a summary of what Catholics believe, a summary of the teachings of the church they were about to enter. So at the end of today's reading selection, first you'll see the Apostles' Creed is spelled out along the left-hand side of the page, and then secondly, the Nicene Creed is spelled out along the right-hand side, uh, right next to the Apostles' Creed. This was composed centuries later, and it doesn't change or update any beliefs or teachings. It simply elaborates or expands upon what the church has already been professing for a few centuries. Like the analogy of the Christmas gift, the church has simply 
in those first few hundred years, taken more items out of the box, turned them over in her hands, and begun to understand more clearly how the pieces work and fit together. This Nicene Creed is due in large part thanks to a pervasive heresy that had spread in the fourth century. I had a professor in college who said, there's nothing that gets the church thinking like a good heresy. Obviously, we don't want people to believe things that aren't what Christ taught, but God, who is both powerful and loving enough to bring great good out of bad, allows heresies to surface. One, because he respects our free will and allows us to think and do things contrary to his will. And secondly, because he, excuse me, the heresies create opportunities for the church to clarify her teachings to more clearly define the divine revelation that God has entrusted to her. So to be clear, it was not that the church was in doubt and she needed to figure out what she believed. Like, oh shoot, what is it we believe again? She always knew what she believed. She just needed to clarify or put words to her beliefs. So with the emergence of different heresies, uh, much Christological, which is a big word for the study of Jesus Christ, Christological debate and development followed. As the church continued her preaching and teaching throughout the centuries, more and more questions naturally occurred. So you might have experienced this um, when talking about the faith or really any topic, um, that as you delve more deeply into a topic, whether it's your children, your friends, your neighbors, often more and more questions arise, um, which I find to be just really wonderful and exciting because it not only makes for a great conversation, but it always helps me personally kind of delve more deeply into, okay, why do I believe that? Where does that come from? Okay, this is where that comes from. That makes sense. This is why I intuitively believe, you know, X, Y, and Z, or this is why the church teaches A, B, and C. So it forced the early church to clearly express what needs to be believed and what is not believed. I don't mean to give all heretics a bad rap, uh, many well-intentioned um, men and women were trying to understand and proclaim the truth. I had another professor in college who, in speaking of a heretic of the 11th century, um, a gentleman by the name of Baron Garius, who had a sincere misunderstanding of the teaching on the real presence in the Eucharist, th this professor referred to him as poor Baron Garius, like he just didn't quite get it right. Um, what makes heresy different from someone who is unaware of the truth and has been teaching errors unknowingly is the refusal to be corrected. So what you'll see throughout church history is that a, a heresy will arise, the church will enter into dialogue with that person and you know, clarify her teachings, clarify this is what the church teaches. If the person persists in, no, this is what I believe Jesus taught, then that's when uh, he or she enters the realm of, of heresy. So leading up to the Nicene Creed, um, the church had always professed that God is a trinity, that God is one, we believe in one God, but that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's three distinct persons, yet one indivisible God. In scripture, we see Christ say both, he has been sent by the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit in his name. So that implies three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus also says things like, the Father and I are one. So the implication is that God is one. It's naturally confusing 
Okay, so is it a boy or a girl? Exactly. Is God one or three? Exactly. It's like, what? I had a student who was new to the faith, and um, she's looking at me kind of like askance one day. She said, so you believe in one God? I said, yeah. She said, but you also believe God is three persons? I said, "Mm mm-hmm. She goes, but you believe he's one? I said, "Mm mm-hmm. She was like, okay. (laughs) That does not make sense. It's also confusing to understand. So we can go from the Trinity to the person of Jesus Christ. It's also confusing to understand how the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is fully, fully God, yet in stepping into our human timeline, he also became fully man. So he took on human flesh and entered our timeline as a human being. Jesus is God, so he's perfect, he's unchangeable, he's all-powerful, right? Right. But Jesus is human, so it seems he's imperfect in that he suffered sadness and pain. It seems he's changeable because he went from being a baby to a kid to a man. And he seems to be not all-powerful because he was killed on a cross, right? So these topics um, are so rich and uh, rooted in the mystery of an infinite God that it's very understandable um, why it's hard for for people to wrap their heads around the the teachings of the Catholic Church, myself included. You know, sometimes I have to take a step back and say, like, okay, Jesus, I trust in you. I believe that the, the Catholic Church is the church you founded, but please help me understand X, Y, and Z teaching. So we are very blessed here in 2022 that we're living many, many centuries after God entrusted this Christmas package, the deposit of faith, to the church. And over these many, many centuries, extremely bright and articulate theologians have put the words to these truths that have always been there. They've defined with clear terms and logical explanations how these seeming conundrums actually make beautiful sense. So I say this so that we can approach those who hold heretical positions compassionately. This is a big, mysterious faith. And in the year 300 AD, Catholics are still in the beginning stages of putting the language to all that God has revealed to us. So this brings us to a man named Arius. He was a priest from Alexandria, Egypt. This is in the early 300s. And at the time, there were two great centers of learning in the Roman Empire. One was in the west, in Alexandria, Egypt. The other was in the east, in Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. The school in the west, in Alexandria, Egypt, really held to the unity of God. So as they studied and then taught, they really accentuated that God is one, which is true. The school in the east, in Antioch, emphasized the distinctness of the three persons of the Trinity. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Each of those three persons is distinct, which is also true. Arius, however, started to fear that the unity of God was being compromised as scholars distinguished among the three persons of the Trinity. So he taught, I'm sure very well-intentioned at first, that originally the Son of God did not exist. So he taught and believed that there was a time when the single divine person existed. That person became Father 
when he created the sun out of nothing. So this divine person existed, and at a moment after the beginning of his existence, he created the son, making himself father. That son, he dubbed the first of all created beings, or the firstborn of creation. The son was higher than the rest of creation, but still a creation, still not God. You can see how he's trying to get around um, like a polytheism or a belief in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by trying to accentuate that, that God is one and the Son comes from him, but is not equal to him, so as not to take away from the unity, the oneness of God. Well, this belief spreads like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. Those who opposed Arius and his teachings explained why his teaching was problematic. So theologians such as the man we now know as St. Athanasius explained that it is God who saves man from his sin. If Jesus is not God, then we have not been saved. So if it was a creature, as Arius said, the firstborn of all creation, who suffered and died on the cross, then he, a finite creature, did not make up for our offense against an infinite God. Only God can repair the rift caused by man against God. So while Arius was spreading what's now known as Arianism, other bishops, priests, theologians in the church were trying to explain why his teaching was very problematic, why uh, that teaching then led to other beliefs very contrary to the faith. Christians quickly took sides, and the division threatened to break up both the church and the Roman Empire. So the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea is also in what's now modern-day Turkey, was called in the year 325, and it was the first ecumenical council. So recall from previous episodes, we've talked about the Council of Trent, which took place in the 16th century, We've talked about the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II, which took place in the 20th century. Those were also ecumenical councils. The Council of Nicaea was the first ecumenical council of the church. It was a gathering of all the bishops of the world, um, an exercise of their collegial authority, which simply means their shared authority over the universal church. About 300 bishops came to Nicaea, and Arius was invited to stand and present his teachings. While some calmly listened, Bishop Nicholas of Myra, the same Nicholas who tossed gold coins into the home of a poor family to save them from destitution, the same Nicholas who became St. Nicholas and is often referred to as Santa Claus, became more and more agitated as Arius spoke. Okay, so as Arius spoke, he just saw the path down which this train was headed and what it meant for the church. He saw that, that this was an essential teaching that just did not hold and would lead to uh, further destructive teaching. Unable to contain himself, as he saw the Christian faith being twisted and turned, he apparently got up, crossed the room, and slapped Arius in the face. Um, there's this great meme where it's an icon of St. Nicholas, you know, beautifully painted, all flecked in gold. And the meme at the top, it says, I came to bring presents to children, 
and punch heretics in the face. And then at the bottom it says, and I'm fresh out of presence. So having given Arius the, the benefit of the doubt, the other bishops did, and allowed him to explain himself, it was very clear that his teaching was wrong and not consistent with what had been handed down from the teachings of Christ. This is where Arius is condemned as a heretic as he persisted and persisted in teaching this error. The bishops proceeded to clarify what the church had always believed and taught and to continue to hand on what they had received as it had been handed down to them throughout the last three centuries from the teachings of Christ. The result of the council then was the Nicene Creed, which included key phrases such as, quote unquote, one in being with the Father. This affirmed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father, is equal in his godliness. The second person of the Trinity is truly God and not a creation of the Father. If you look at the end of part one, section one of the Catechism, where the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are placed next to each other, you'll see that the Nicene Creed simply puts more language to what is laid out in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says about the second person of the Trinity, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Well, the Nicene Creed says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. The Nicene Creed elaborates on what it means for Jesus Christ to be the Son of the Father while remaining God himself. So, for example, he's quote-unquote begotten and not made, as light emanates from light. So think of a flame spreading from one candle to another. Flame number one and flame number two are of the same substance, but now we see two distinct flames. God the Father and God the Son are of the same substance, the godly substance, but they are distinct from one another. So as the flame on candle number one is not the same flame as the flame on candle number two, the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father, but they are both equally flame or equally God. This might seem a bit like hair splitting and far removed from the great work of Catholics like Mother Teresa. I mean, should the church really spend its time defining terms and hammering out the minutia of creeds when instead it could be serving the poor in Calcutta? The answer is yes. What we believe matters and it has ramifications for our day-to-day -day living. And besides, when asked if the church should be engaging in the work of elevated theology or serving the forsaken of our world, cast aside in the slums, you already know my favorite answer. Exactly. It's both and. Next week, we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 185 through 213, and we'll talk about how God has a name. Rather than being a nebulous higher power that's inaccessible and uninvolved, he's a specific being, a personal reality who's both near to us and interested in us. We'll also talk about a term that's thrown out right at the end of next week's reading. That term is the Septuagint, and we'll talk about, talk about why it's helpful to know this term when chatting with non-Catholics. So thanks for joining me this week. And please stick around to listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 156 through 184, after a brief break. 
God bless you. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 156 through 184. Faith and Understanding What moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason. We believe because of the authority of God himself who reveals them, who can neither deceive nor be deceived, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with reason. God willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the miracles of Christ and the saints— prophecies, the church's growth and holiness, and her fruitfulness and stability are the most certain signs of divine revelation, adapted to the intelligence of all. They are motives of credibility, which show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. Faith is certain. It is more certain than all human knowledge because it is founded on the very word of God who cannot lie. To be sure, revealed truths can seem obscure to human reason and experience, but the certainty that the divine light gives is greater than that which the light of natural reason gives. 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. Faith seeks understanding. It is intrinsic to faith that a believer desires to know better the one in whom he has put his faith and to understand better what he has revealed. A more penetrating knowledge will in turn call forth a greater faith increasingly set afire by love. The grace of faith opens the eyes of your hearts to a lively understanding of the contents of revelation, that is, of the totality of God's plan and the mysteries of faith, of their connection with each other and with Christ, the center of the revealed mystery. The same Holy Spirit constantly perfects faith by his gifts, so that revelation may be more and more profoundly understood. In the words of St. Augustine, I believe in order to understand, and I understand the better to believe. Faith and science. Though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason. Since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodological research in all branches of knowledge provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself. For it is God, the conserver of all things, who made them what they are. The freedom of faith. To be human, man's response to God by faith must be free and therefore nobody is to be forced to embrace the faith against his will. The act of faith is of its very nature a free act. God calls men to serve him in spirit and in truth. Consequently, they are bound to him in conscience but not coerced. This fact received its fullest manifestation in Christ Jesus. Indeed, Christ invited people to faith and conversion, but never coerced them. For he bore witness to the truth, but refused to use force to impose it on those who spoke against it. 
His kingdom grows by the love with which Christ, lifted up on the cross, draws men to himself. The Necessity of Faith Believing in Jesus Christ and in the one who sent him for our salvation is necessary for obtaining that salvation. Since without faith it is impossible to please God and to attain to the fellowship of his sons, therefore without faith no one has ever attained justification, nor will anyone obtain eternal life but he who endures to the end. Perseverance and Faith Faith is an entirely free gift that God makes to man. We can lose this priceless gift, as St. Paul indicated to St. Timothy. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. To live, grow, and persevere in the faith until the end, we must nourish it with the word of God. We must beg the Lord to increase our faith. It must be working through charity, abounding in hope, and rooted in the faith of the church. Faith, the beginning of eternal life. Faith makes us taste in advance the light of the beatific vision, the goal of our journey here below. Then we shall see God face to face as he is. So faith is already the beginning of eternal life. When we contemplate the blessings of faith even now, as if gazing at a reflection in a mirror, it is as if we already possessed the wonderful things which our faith assures us we shall one day enjoy. Now, however, we walk by faith, not by sight. We perceive God as in a mirror dimly and only in part. Even though enlightened by him in whom it believes, faith is often lived in darkness and can be put to the test. The world we live in often seems very far from the one promised us by faith. Our experiences of evil and suffering, injustice and death seem to contradict the good news. They can shake our faith and become a temptation against it. It is then we must turn to the witnesses of faith to Abraham, who in hope believed against hope, to the Virgin Mary, who in her pilgrimage of faith walked into the night of faith and sharing the darkness of her son's suffering and death, and to so many others. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Article 2. We Believe. Faith is a personal act, the free response of the human person to the initiative of God who reveals himself. But faith is not an isolated act. No one can believe alone, just as no one can live alone. You have not given yourself faith as you have not given yourself life. The believer has received faith from others and should hand it on to others. Our love for Jesus and for our neighbor impels us to speak to others about our faith. Each believer is thus a link in the great chain of believers. I cannot believe without being carried by the faith of others, and by my faith I help support others in the faith. I believe, the Apostles' Creed, is the faith of the church professed personally by each believer, principally during baptism. We believe, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, is the faith of the church confessed by the bishops, assembled in council, or more generally by the liturgical assembly of believers. I believe is also the church, our mother, responding to God by faith as she teaches us to say both, I believe and we believe. Lord, look upon the faith of your church. It is the church that believes first, and so bears, nourishes, and sustains my faith. Everywhere, it is the church that first confesses the Lord. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you, 
as we sing in the hymn Te Deum. With her and in her, we are won over and brought to confess, I believe, we believe. It is through the church that we receive faith and new life in Christ by baptism. In the Rituale Romanum, the minister of baptism asks the the catechumen, what do you ask of God's church? And the answer is faith. What does faith offer you? Eternal life. Salvation comes from God alone, but because we receive the life of faith through the church, she is our mother. We believe the church as the mother of our new birth and not in the church as if she were the author of our salvation. Because she is our mother, she is also our teacher in the faith. The language of faith. We do not believe in formulas, but in those realities they express, which faith allows us to touch. The believer's act of faith does not terminate in the propositions, but in the realities which they express. All the same, we do approach these realities with the help of formulations of the faith, which permit us to express the faith and to hand it on, to celebrate it in community, to assimilate and live on it more and more. The church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, faithfully guards the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. She guards the memory of Christ's words. It is she who from generation to generation hands on the apostles' confession of faith. As a mother who teaches her children to speak and so to understand and communicate, the church our mother teaches us the language of faith in order to introduce us to the understanding and the life of faith. Only one faith. Through the centuries, in so many languages, cultures, peoples, and nations, the church has constantly confessed this one faith, received from the one Lord, transmitted by one baptism, and grounded in the conviction that all people have only one God and Father. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, a witness of this faith, declared, Indeed, the church, though scattered throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, having received the faith from the apostles and their disciples, guards this preaching and faith with care, as dwelling in but a single house, and similarly believes, as if having but one soul and a single heart, and preaches, teaches, and hands on this faith with a unanimous voice, as if possessing only one mouth. For though languages differ throughout the world, the content of the tradition is one and the same. The church established in Germany, excuse me, the churches established in Germany have no other faith or tradition, nor do those of the Iberians, nor those of the Celts, nor those of the East, of Egypt, of Libya, nor those established at the center of the world. The church's message is true and solid, in which one and the same way of salvation appears throughout the whole world. We guard with care the faith that we have received from the church, for without ceasing, under the action of God's Spirit, this deposit of great price, as if in an excellent vessel, is constantly being renewed and causes the very vessel that contains it to be renewed. In brief, faith is a personal adherence of the whole man to God who reveals himself. It involves an assent of the intellect and will to the self-revelation God has made through his deeds and words. To believe has thus a twofold reference, to the person and to the truth. To the truth by trust in the person who bears witness to it. We must believe in no one but God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Faith is a supernatural gift from God. In order to believe, man needs the interior helps of the Holy Spirit. Believing is a human act, conscious and free, corresponding to the dignity of the human person. Believing is an ecclesial act. The church's faith precedes, engenders, supports, and nourishes our faith. The church is the mother of all believers. 
No one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. We believe all that which is contained in the word of God, written or handed down, and which the church proposes for belief as divinely revealed. Faith is necessary for salvation. The Lord himself affirms, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Faith is a foretaste of the knowledge that will make us blessed in the life to come, said St. Thomas Aquinas. This section then ends with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So first, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me this week. I'll see you next week, and God bless you in the meantime. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.